0: I didn't realize my battery had died in the middle of my pastoral prayer, so I don't know when it happened. Uh, The acoustics in this auditorium are great. Hopefully you heard that, but thank you to our great tech team who ran up and replaced my battery. Uh, Hopefully you'll hear this prayer and the rest of the message. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this church, and thank you for this sermon series on fear. I know for myself, I have been looking forward to what Mel has had to say each week, as I know that that's a challenge that I wrestle with when it comes to anxieties and fear and what is going to happen in the future. And so, God, as we interact with your word today, may your Holy Spirit work in each of our lives to say to each of us as individuals what you want to say so that our eyes would be opened and see you more clearly, that our minds would be open and understand you more deeply, that our hands and our hearts would be open to serve you more effectively. And God, may my words fall down so that your words would be lifted up, because we want to hear from you this morning. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. My, my wife and I own a condo in Northeast Edmonton, and it's not exactly a luxury condo. A couple months ago, we were sitting around the staff table, and I think one of the people was looking for a new house to buy or to purchase, and someone made the comment, I don't think you can buy a condo or anything in this city for less than $200,000. And I kind of sheepishly put up my hand and said, my condo is $125,000, and I'm rounding up. So since last summer, I thought to myself, it might be time to sell. Our condo's actually quite nice, but there's no in-suite laundry, and if you're a renter or you own rental properties, you know that's a kicker for some people. And so I thought that it would be time to sell, and it was a great time when my tenant contacted me a couple weeks ago and said, Dave, uh, there's some things I need you to fix here at the place. Can you come by and take a look at that? And I thought, perfect. I'm going to talk to a few realtors. I'm going to ask them what they think the house is worth, what kind of minor renovations need to take place. We'll get this thing on the market. We'll sell it. It's just been a headache since I've owned it. I did not have a good Friday. One realtor was quite confident and said, well, I think I, I can get you about $110,000, $120,000. And I was like, oh, okay, well, with that number, we're good. The two other realtors who deal specifically in Clairview said, not a chance. So if you're wondering, not only are there properties in our city for less than $200,000, they're worth less than $100,000, and I was encouraged to list significantly under that mark. To make matters worse, after my tenant thanked me for the repairs, she let me know she was moving out, and I started getting this panic attack. Do we sell and just deplete our savings just to get rid of this condo? How much do we spend on renos, knowing we'll never make any money back? Do I want to sell, or is God asking me to sell? And if God is asking me to sell, what does that mean, and what does that look like? What if we can't find another good tenant, and the place just sits empty? What if we put in renovations, find a renter, and they ruin the place completely. Why doesn't God just send step-by-step email instructions as to what to do in situations like this? So last Sunday, I arrived at church with full intention of paying close, close attention to what Mel had to say in his sermon. Not only was I expecting big things, but I desperately needed God to show up, to speak to me. How is God going to rock my world? How is God going to work through this change? How is God going to give me the strength to get through this change? How am I supposed to preach this day, the following week, in the midst of all this change? Can I teach the baptism class and maybe Mel can stand here for one more week? I really like what Mel's sermon title was last Sunday. God of the night. For many of us, our fears come to rest at night activity of the day is done we're left alone in a dark silent room and our mind starts to go how am i going to do in my diploma exams what school should i go to next year is the job that i'm currently in right for me or is it time for me to move somewhere else will my kids ever come back to church and what role do i have in that How do I help my family to make wise decisions? Can I afford rent or mortgage or a retirement home? Do I have the health to go on this trip that I want to? How do I not fail at fill in the blank? Most of us have fear at some point. What are we supposed to do with it? If you have your Bibles with you, please open them up to Psalm chapter 34. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's Bibles in the pew racks in front of you, and if you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you this morning. The Bible can be a little bit of an intimidating book, but the opening page will have a table of contents. Uh, under the Old Testament, you'll find the book of Psalms. Flip to that page. The big numbers are the chapter numbers. The small numbers are the verse numbers, and we're in Psalm chapter 34. 34. Allow me to point you out as you're turning there where we're going this morning. I'll be sharing with you an outline. It's kind of like a road map. Pretend we're all on a trip to Jasper together. We might drive by Spruce Grove, and then we'll drive by Etson, and then we'll hit Hinton, and all of those markers are on the way to Jasper. As we go through the outline, all of these markers may not be individual points, but pointing you to the bigger idea. May we taste and see that God is good. If you enjoy taking notes, the first part is an invitation to praise. I've already read it once. We'll read it again. This is verses 1 to 3. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. One of our newest staff members, Russ McDermott, was sharing with me a Trinitarian view of worship. I had never heard of this idea before, so I was quite intrigued when he sat down and he started to unpack what it meant. He explained how mainline churches, those would be Anglicans and Lutherans, as well as the Catholic Church, have a worship that revolves around liturgy and sacraments, and this reflects God the Father. In everything they do, there is very much an order that takes place. The scriptures, the songs, the prayers are picked in advance. If you went to an Anglican church this morning or if you went next week, you could know in advance what would be taught on, what would be spoken about, and even the prayers that would be prayed. Another group of churches have a focus on God the Son, and this is where we fall in. Baptist churches, Alliance churches, Evangelical Free, and others. While we sing each week and we take communion once a month, most of our services revolve around the ministry of the Word of God, with usually about half uh, half of the service being taken up by the sermon. The third group would be our charismatic friends, the Pentecostals, Vineyard, Apostolic, and others who focus on God the Spirit. Like the other two groups, they focus on, um, they practice communion and they have Bible studies, but their emphasis is on charismatic worship. And sometimes we look at the other groups and say, oh, if only you had it right. If you were only like us where you had robust and solid teaching from the pulpit. But my Anglican Anglican friends will look at us and say, if only you understood history and order and the beauty of communion each, each week. My charismatic friends would look at us and say, oh, if only you practiced the spiritual gifts, all the spiritual gifts in your worship service. All three types of groups have their strengths. All three groups have areas in which they can grow. I remember a few years ago, I was listening to a Baptist preacher and he shared the story of how an individual would constantly arrive late to church And so eventually he tapped the gentleman on the shoulder and he said, I've noticed that you always come just as the singing is about to end and right at the beginning of the sermon. Why do you do that? The man replied by saying something like, I'm not here for the music. It doesn't do anything for me. I'm just here for the message. For the third time this morning, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. One commentator said this is the most beautiful invitation to praise in the entire scriptures. Music is of great importance to Sunday worship. The singing isn't just something we get through before the main event. The singing is an integral part of what we do on Sunday mornings. It prepares our hearts for what God wants to do. Singing praise, even when we don't feel like it, reminds ourselves of the greatness and the holiness of the God whom we're here to worship or learn more about. Singing is an invitation from God to not only seek his goodness, but to taste his goodness, to experience his goodness, to remind ourselves why we're here and what we're doing. A number of months ago, Pastor Tim, who leads our worship ministry, shared the illustration of standing before the king in the courtroom with arms crossed as though to say, what are you going to do for me? But if we were to come into the presence of God, whether as dedicated followers of Jesus or wherever we might be on our spiritual journey, we wouldn't come with arrogance, but we would come with awe and wonder, as we sang earlier today, and every knee will bow. David, who wrote this psalm, says, let us exalt his name together. Now, you might be saying, yeah, but Dave, what if I don't feel like it? What if I don't want to praise? What if I've had just a hellish week, and it took everything it does just to get me into the auditorium this morning? You want me to just fake it? Do you want me to be a hypocrite? There's a maturity in praising God, even when we don't necessarily feel like it. And this is not hypocrisy. It's acknowledging that God is always worthy of our praise. It's not unusual for me on a Sunday morning or throughout the week to say to God, I don't really feel like singing this morning. I don't really feel like praying. I don't really feel like reading the Bible. And so I'm not coming to you, God, as a hypocrite. I'm coming to you sharing with you where my heart is at. And I'm going to do it anyways. Meet me in the midst of my difficulty. But what if you package it a different way? Is it hypocritical to show up to work or to school when you really don't feel like it? For our students right now, they're about to enter, maybe they're already in their midst of diploma exams. Can you imagine a teacher saying, hey, Sam, you just don't really look like you're into it today. Why don't you go home, watch a series or two in, on Netflix, and come back when you're ready to take the exam? It doesn't work like that. I can't imagine my mechanic is really excited to crawl underneath my car every single day to fix whatever else is recently broken. I can't imagine our bookkeepers at our organizations or the companies we work at are really excited to every day get a whole new stash of receipts. But there's a reward at the end. A paycheck. There's a reward in taking our fears, our anxieties, our troubles and bringing them before God, praising him who is in control of all things. God gives us a sense of peace. One of the reasons we can exalt his name together is because many of us share a common experience. This is verses 4 to 7. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. It's beautiful, isn't it? If you have your Bibles in front of you, take a look at verse 4. What does God deliver us from? From fear. Jump down to verse 6. What are you saved from? Your troubles. How is this possible, you might ask? In verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. I was intrigued at the repetition of the word deliver, and I thought, is it the same word, or is it actually different words that have been translated the same way? It turns out it's the latter. It's two different words. The original language, which the Psalms are written in Hebrew, is actually the word rescue. So it actually reads like this. God will deliver us. He will save us. He will rescue us. He is the God who rocks our world and gives us a firm foundation on which to stand. It's why the psalmist can say in verse 5, Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. What I so appreciate about this psalm is that it's not just written in the theoretical sense. It's written by someone who's in the midst of a terrifying situation. You'll notice before verse 1 we read something called the superscription. It's absolutely part of the scriptures. This wasn't added by the translator. It says, of David, when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he left. I think that's a story worth telling. We're introduced to David in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Samuel, who's one of God's prophets, is moping around a little bit, and God says to Samuel, Samuel, I want you to go visit one of my good friends, Jesse. And I want you to anoint one of Jesse's sons, the future king of Israel. And so while each of Jesse's sons are brought before Samuel, Samuel is ready to anoint them. They're good-looking, strapping young men. And he thinks to himself, surely this is the man who will be the next king of Israel. And God says, nope, it's none of these men. And so Samuel looks at Jesse and he says, do you have any other children? To which Jesse replies, yeah, kind of the runt of the litter. He's out taking care of the sheep. And Samuel says, bring him on in. And when David comes to stand before Samuel, reread this in chapter 16, verse 13. Samuel took the horn of an oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. David has been anointed the next king of Israel. The problem being, there already is a king of Israel. In the very next chapter, we see how special David is. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, we read the story of the Israelites standing on one side of the valley and the Philistines standing on the other side of the valley, about to go to war with one another. Every single day, in morning and in evening, for 40 days, the Philistine champion stands in the middle of the valley as warms wide open, challenging the Israelites to fight with him. Why do you come and line up for battle, he says. Choose a man and have him come and fight me. If he defeats me, we will be your subjects. If I defeat him, you will be our subjects. For a month and a half, this takes place. The people of Israel are terrified. Who's going to stand against the Philistine champion? One day, David is dropping food off to his older brothers, who are part of the Israelite army. And he happens to hear Goliath's challenge. But rather than being afraid, like the rest of God's people, he says to his brothers, Who's this bozo thinking he can challenge us? I'll go knock this sucker right out. The king actually lets him try it. As if the mere idea of sending a teenager to fight a military champion isn't audacious enough, David doesn't wear any armor. He simply goes out with a slingshot and a couple stones, and he takes a stone, and he pegs Goliath right in the middle of the head, and he dies. The king of Israel, a man named Saul, is so impressed he doesn't let David leave his side. So David leads the rolling hills of the countryside to be in the palace with the king. And everything King Saul asked him to do, David is wildly successful, so much so that we see in 1 Samuel 18, when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with tambourines and lutes. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has tens of thousands. King Saul becomes intensely jealous of David and tries to kill him. So David runs away, and he runs away to the nation of Gath. Even millennia ago, where there is no social media, if you're that famous, people know about you. This is what we read. In chapter 21, verse 11, the servants of Akish, another name for Abimelech, said to him, Isn't this David the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Akish, king of Gath, so he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Let's pause for a moment and look at the bigger picture. David is the anointed king of Israel. David has defeated the Philistine champion. Everywhere King Saul has sent David, he has been wildly successful. And yet this king of a rather insignificant nation wants to kill him, and he's terrified. If you continue on, Achish said to his servants, Look at this man. He's insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? It's at this time that David wrote Psalm 34 of David when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech who drove him away and he left. It's at this time in his life when he invites us to praise God together the invitation is beautiful. It's as though David is looking at all of us in this room and saying, whatever you fear, whether it's the exams that are coming up, whether it's making your next mortgage payment, whether it's the health concerns you have, whether two people are trying to kill you, we're all in this together. Let us praise and worship God. And what's amazing in that is that he actually means it. Well, his fears are probably different than ours. He's saying, do you fear something? Come, taste and see that God is good. Experience the depth of his love for you. Verses 8 to 10. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Where do you go when your fears overwhelm you? What do you do when life starts to spiral and go out of control? What you pursue reveals in what you place your hope. In my generation and the generation following me, entertainment has become the drug of choice. Video games, Netflix, YouTube, online shopping, we are provided with countless opportunities to entertain ourselves. Perhaps you're the same. Perhaps yours is a little bit different. When things go south, you just work harder. You seek to control the situation. You become so busy that you don't even have time to think about the worries of this life. Still others might turn to substance abuse, to sexual pursuits, to friends or family or something, anything that will take this pain away. Yet in the midst of all of this, in the midst of our pursuits, God is passionately coming after us. God is pursuing us, wanting a relationship with us, saying, come back to me. I am always here with arms wide open to welcome anyone who comes. There's nothing wrong with an evening of entertainment. Nothing wrong with working hard. Nothing wrong with seeking the comfort of friends or family members. The problems arise when these things replace God. I don't often remember much from books I've read more than a decade ago, but there's a man by the name of G.K. Chesterton who wrote a book called Orthodoxy. And while I pulled the book off my shelf, I didn't re- couldn't find the exact quote. But to paraphrase it, it went something like this. Why is it that prayer and praise is often my last resort? that I try to find comfort and peace in the pleasures of this world only to leave disappointed. But then when I finally come to God in personal prayer in public worship that I meet with him and I finally say to myself, why did it take me so long to get here? In the opening chapter of Proverbs we're reminded in chapter 1 verse 7 the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge but fools despise wisdom and discipline. David is saying, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So the application comes a little bit early today. How do you best draw near to God? How do you personally best draw near to God? Is it by listening to a sermon? Is it by personal Bible study and prayer? Is it by gathering together in small groups? Is it by confessing your sins? Is it by going on long walks? Is it by painting? By writing? By being artistic? How do you draw near to God? The psalmist is offering an invitation taste and see that God is good. Picking up in verse 11, come, my children. Listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. It's a beautiful picture. When I was studying this past week, I kept thinking of a dad with arms wide open who his kids and the kids in the neighborhood absolutely love. Come. Come, my children, come to me, and let me tell you how to fear the Lord. Here are the things you need to know. One, watch your tongue. Two, turn away from evil. Three, do good. The instruction is both subtle and obvious at the same time. It's obvious in that we can read these verses and easily pick out what David is saying. It's subtle because not everyone who pursues peace will always find it. Sometimes we pursue peace and treat God like a genie in the bottle. When things go wrong, we're going to run to God. We're going to rub that lamp. God's going to show up. He's going to make everything good. And then when we're done with him, we can put him back on the shelf for when we need him again. But God doesn't work that way. He desperately wants a relationship with you. Jesus himself says in Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. In other words, this invitation is an invitation to not only worship and praise him, but an invitation to fear him. Fear God and make that the basis of your life. In the fear of God, we are constantly in a battle to transform and renew our mind and our actions. We are ridding ourselves of the old way of thinking and replacing it with a new way of thinking. The story at the beginning of the sermon isn't a story that I made up. It's not a story that's five years old and I'm now way past that. It's a story that happened nine days ago. A story in which I came home to my wife kind of frazzled. I don't know what to do. Two days later when Mel was preaching, I was paying close attention. And one of the things he talked about was name that fear. So as my wife and I began to talk, I said, "Hun, i I'm scared we don't have the finances to deal with this. We might sell at a loss. We might not find a good renter, perhaps something else altogether. On Friday, on Saturday, for the first half of Sunday, I wasn't doing so well. Listening to Mel's sermon last week, doing some reading on my own this past week, will you replace those thoughts with good thoughts? It's God's money, not my own. He can do with it as he wishes. It's God's condo, not my own. He can do with it as he wishes. God cares about us. And the difficulties and the challenges that come to our way is an opportunity to grow in holiness. We trust in him, and we're going to make it through to the other end. We replace that darkness and the bad thoughts with the scriptures, and the light crowds out the darkness, which leads us to the final part of our message this morning, the rewards of wisdom. One of the beauties of the psalm, and poetry in general, is how the author will say the same idea in numerous ways. Listen to verses 15 to 18, and you'll hear that repetition, you'll hear that cadence over and over again. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, his ears are attentive to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. To cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the broken hearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. What does the world have to offer that makes that same level of promise? As beneficial as a job might be to pay your bills, it can't offer you Love. As comforting as Netflix might be for an evening, it cannot heal your soul. As great as medicine is, it doesn't answer life's deepest questions. But there is someone who will rescue you from all your trials. There is a reward for the wisdom and it's the fear of the Lord. When we taste and see that God is good, when we know God is listening, we know he will deliver us. We know he will rescue those who are crushed in spirit. there's a damaging theology that far too many people subscribe to called the health and wealth gospel and basically this is what it says if you believe in Jesus you'll experience physical health and monetary wealth because that's what Jesus desires for you it's not true it's not true at all The Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament and is applauded for his passion for following God, has this written about him in Acts chapter 9. The Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man Paul is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. If that's not enough, most Christians, hopefully all Christians, would acknowledge that Jesus Christ lived a perfect and sinless life. If anyone received health and wealth, surely it would be the Son of God. The very same Jesus died an excruciatingly painful death and did not even have the shirt on his back when he died. Verses 19 to 22. A righteous man may have many troubles, but the Lord will deliver them, him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Evil will slay the wicked, the foes of the righteous will be condemned. But the Lord redeems his servants. No one will be condemned who takes refuge in him. Just because we fear the Lord, just because we place our trust in him, does not mean we will be free from troubles, but rather it is in our troubles and in our afflictions we meet intimately with God himself. As the author of Hebrews says in chapter 4, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but rather we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus enters into our pain and suffering during this life to rescue us from the ultimate pain and suffering of death. If you still have your Bibles open in front of you, in front of you. Jesus is the ultimate righteous man mentioned in verse 19 who faced troubles and overcame them all. Jesus is the prophetic fulfillment of verse 20 who though he died on a cross never had a bone bone broken and because of his death and resurrection verse 22 he has redeemed us his sons and daughters and promised there is no condemnation for those who believe in him. He delivers us from our sins. He saves us from our troubles and rescues our souls from death and the invitation rings out taste and see that the lord is good let's pray heavenly father please forgive us in this room who wrestle with fears with anxieties with not knowing where our next meal is going to come from, if we'll ever be healed, if our kids are going to come back to church or whatever we might be wrestling with. And help us instead to replace those types of fears with a fear that is intimately dedicated to you. Recognizing that you are in control of all things, that you have incredible wealth, that you are the divine healer, that you live in perfect relationship. And whether in this life or in the next, You promise fulfillment in all those things. May we taste and see how good you are. May we experience you in the way that you have made us to experience you. Through song, through spoken word, through great friends, through whatever way you've designed us to be. May we be filled with your Holy Spirit. And as the Apostle Paul talks about the armor of God in Ephesians 6, that upon our feet would be a readiness that comes with the peace of the gospel so that we might do the works that you've called us to do and share this good news. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.